Thank you for listening to the Riverbend Church podcast. Riverbend Church exists to lead all people to know, love, and live new life in Jesus Christ. We hope that you enjoy this message. We are actually in the middle of three weeks into a series called Unmet Expectations. And this series is all about what do we do when life doesn't turn out the way that we once thought that it would. So unmet expectations are um, when we once thought that life would go a certain way and the reality just doesn't match up with what we once thought and what we once dreamed about. And we all have unmet expectations, whether those unmet expectations are relationally, professionally, financially, spiritually, we all have unmet expectations. Um, Just kind of bring us all up to speed on where we've been the last couple of weeks together. One of the things that we have come back and we've kind of dove into and we've talked about is typically our unmet expectations fall into one of three categories. And if you have your notes with us, and if you're taking notes, with us this morning. I put these categories on your note sheet, but then I put something really important out beside each of those categories. But the buckets and the categories that our unmet expectations typically fall into are unrealistic goals. These are the goals that I have for me that maybe God doesn't have for me. These are effects from past decisions. These are the things that we wish that we could go back in time and make different choices because we've seen where our choices lead. We feel that the effects of our past decisions absolutely paralyze us to where we currently are, or they certainly limit us to where God uh, wants to take us in the future. But these lead into unmet expectations. And then also events out of my control. The third category of my unmet expectations are events out of my control. So this could be a layoff from work. This can be a a new medical diagnosis. This can be the effects or the actions or the decisions made by someone else that has a direct impact on me. Each of these lead to unmet expectations. But one of the things that we've talked about is there's nothing that you and I will ever go through that the Word of God is silent on. So the reason I said, the reason I wanted to point you to your note sheet this morning is out beside each of these buckets or each of these categories are verses of Scripture or passages of Scripture. So for us here this morning, I think it's really important for us to really just spend time evaluating or thinking about which category do my unmet expectations fall into. When I think about the, 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 how life hasn't ended up the way that I thought that it would, is it, uh, is it because of an unrealistic goal? Is it because of past decisions? Or is it because of events out of my control? And that's the first step in, provi- in, in, in finding healing from God when it comes to our unmet expectations. The reason I say it's our first step is because we need to identify which of these categories our unmet expectations fall into and then combat it with Scripture. And I gave you, out beside each of these unmet expectations, I gave you different scriptures for you to dive into this week in your time moving forward when you face an unmet expectation and you're really dealing with that and you're sitting there going, hey God, my life hasn't turned out the way that I thought that it would because of one of these three categories. What does your word say about this? What does your word say about my present condition? What does your word say about my future potential in this? What does your word say about how you want to use me and how you continue you want to uh, uh, flow in and through me to the world outside of me. But a lot of times when it comes to our unmet expectations, when life doesn't go the way that we thought that it would, we start to think that life spins out of control. We start to think that life spins out of control. And when we start to feel that life spins out of control, then we are faced with one of three possibilities. 
We're faced with the possibility of, hey, my life is out of control and I feel paralyzed to move forward in any way. But as long as we feel paralyzed, we're going to perpetually feel victimized by the decisions all around us. Maybe our own decisions, maybe the decisions that affect us from other people. Or we can feel that life is spun out of control, that we make the decision, I'm going to go my own way, do my own thing, in my own strength, in my own time. And here's what I'll tell you is if that's the route that we take, it's only going to multiply and compound the frustration and the letdown and the disappointment. Or there's a third option for us. And this third option has served as the big idea for this entire series. And it is understanding and resting in the fact that God is still in control when life seems out of control. That God is still in control when life seems out of control. And listen, this is not just some like church pep talk. This is not some like, hey, church talk or church speak this let go and let God type of, uh, of triteness. It is a truth that you and I can understand that we can rest in and that we can place our trust and our truth in. And to serve as the backdrop or the background of this big idea, God is still in control when life seems out of control. We've been going through the book of Ruth together. If you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in Ruth chapter 3 this morning. Ruth chapter 3. And if you're new to Riverbend or um, just need kind of a refresher where we, have, where we left off, let me give you a broad sweeping overview. Around 1,100 years before Jesus was born, so 1,100 B.C., there was a massive famine in the Palestinian area, no, uh, still modern-day known as the, uh, as the Middle East. There was a massive famine. There was a man by the name of Elimelech that he and his wife, Naomi, because of this famine, Elimelech chose to move to a foreign country, to move his family to a foreign country. And the Bible is called Moab. Modern day, it's the nation of Jordan. So him and his wife and their two sons, Kilian and Milan, they end up moving to a foreign country. They move away from their hometown of Bethlehem up to modern day Jordan to work, to find work, to find food, to just be able to survive and provide for the family. After some stretch of time, the Bible tells us that Elimelech dies. So leaving Naomi, a grieving widow in a foreign country and a single mom of two. Naomi's two sons, Milan and Killian, they grow up to meet and to marry two Moabite women, one by the name of Orpah, another by the name of Ruth. After some time, her two sons die. So now Naomi is, a foreign, is in a foreign country. She is a grieving widow, and she's grieving the loss of two of her, of her two sons. And she makes the decision to turn back and to go back to her hometown of Bethlehem. And Ruth, one of her daughters-in-law, chooses to go with her. So they go back to their hometown of Bethlehem, and they just try to make ends meet. What we talked about last week was Ruth, I actually asked her mother-in-law, Naomi, do you think it would be okay for me to go around the surrounding fields or this area and basically just pick up scraps of grain that the harvesters had left behind? Because when they arrived in Bethlehem, it was right before the barley harvest. So the barley harvesters, they're harvesting these fields and they're leaving scraps of grain behind. So Ruth's idea is, I'm going to just go pick up scraps and crumbs just for me and Naomi to survive. So needless to say, life had not turned out the way that neither Naomi nor Ruth thought that it would. But what they didn't realize at the time is God was working all things behind the scenes. Because as it turns out, Ruth ended up in the field of a man by the name of Boaz. Boaz was the landowner. 
So Boaz showed incredible kindness to her. What we talked about last week was showing Christ-like kindness to people around us, living with an attitude and a posture of you matter, telling people and reminding people across our path, hey, you matter. You matter to God. You matter to us. You were seen. You were known. You were loved. You matter. So Boaz extended great kindness to Ruth. Ruth returns home with five weeks' worth of grain to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi asked just basically a a common question or a no-brainer question. Hey, number one, who helped you get all this grain? And number two, where in the world did you get all this grain? So Ruth tells her mother-in-law, listen, you'll never believe this. I met the landowner. His name is Boaz. And at that point in time, the Bible tells us in Ruth chapter 2, Naomi lit up and goes, Boaz, Boaz is one of our family redeemers. Some of your translations say kinsmen redeemers. If, you, if, you, uh, if you're a, a follower of the Pinterest version of the Bible, it probably says kinsman redeemer, right? So kinsman redeemer, family redeemer, is a phrase that we don't really use in 2023 Gainesville, right? Or Western culture. But in the Middle East during that time, and especially among the Jewish people, a kinsman redeemer was a huge responsibility. Let me very briefly explain to you what a kinsman redeemer's responsibility was. They were the person at the head of the family, the head of the table at the family, that they had two, two primary responsibilities. Number one, they were to preserve the family name. If you read on into Deuteronomy chapter 25, it talks about the obligations of the family redeemer, that your job as a family redeemer or as the patriarch of the family, you're to preserve the family name, which means if, you, if there's a male member of the family that dies, you are, your responsibility is you're to remarry his widow. And the heir provided out of that marriage is to carry on the family name of the deceased husband. So number one, carry on the family name. Number two, the family redeemer's responsibility was to repurchase or to redeem any land, family land that was sold off by any family member due to financial hardships or stresses. So Boaz was the responsible party. He was the family redeemer for Naomi. And at that point in time, this is the first time since Naomi's husband died and her two sons had died and she came back to her hometown that she experienced a glimmer of hope. And even though she explained who Boaz was to Ruth, even though she correctly identified Boaz to Ruth, the correct identification of Boaz didn't have direct application to Ruth until we get to Ruth chapter 3. In Ruth chapter 3, we see a blossom of hope. Hope's a really powerful thing, isn't it? It's a really powerful thing. Like hope, as a matter of fact, the presence or the absence of hope. The presence of hope in my life, the presence of hope in your life, the absence of hope in your life, the absence of hope in my life changes everything, doesn't it? Oakwood, I think you would agree. The presence of hope in your life is going to change the way that you think. It's going to change the way that you feel and going to change the way that you act. In other words, if there's hope in your life, hope that what currently is won't always be, man, that hope, that propels you, doesn't it? If there's an absence of hope, if I start to doubt that how life is is how life will always be, that doesn't propel me. It actually confines me. That's the power of hope. That's the power of hope. But did you know the presence or the absence of hope in our lives is always one of the greatest indicators of our faith and our trust in Jesus in our lives. 
Here's what I mean, is if we believe that as long as Jesus is in the equation in our lives, to which he is, then all things are possible. And that gives me hope. But if we believe that our circumstances and our current situations are too big for God, then that's going to lead to an absence of hope. And like we said, an absence of hope always changes the way that I feel, the way that I act, and the way that I view life. And one of the things that I want to show you this morning is pointing you to an ultimate hope. So if you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in Ruth chapter 3, but I want to show you, typically to kind of set the stage for Ruth 3, I want to show you our common sources of hope this morning. Our common sources of hope, and there are at least five sources of hope, and we're going to go through these really quickly. Number one, there's hope in myself. Or there's hope in yourself. This is an attitude of, listen, if I just work harder and if I do better, then life will end up better. I'll pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I'm self-sustainable. It's all about willpower. It's hope in yourself. But can we just get real for a moment? If we really were to get honest with ourselves about ourselves, we know that we're not really a good sustainable source of hope, are we? Because we know how limited we are. Like, we know if you're, if you're a husband, if you're a dad, if you're a grandparent, if you're an employee, if you're a wife, if you're a mom, we know how powerless we really are and limited in our scope. So having ourselves as a source of hope is not a sustainable source of hope. But typically, we go to number two, other people. And this is an attitude of, listen, if I can just get right, if I can just be in with the right group of people, if I can just get married, or if I can just get remarried, or if I can just be in that room with that group of people, or seated, uh, seated at that table with that group of people, then I'll have peace. But can I tell you this, and this is something, uh, something that you already know, not always intentionally, but people will always let us down, won't they? Not always intentionally, but people are people. And just, to, just as you and I are human and just as you and I mess up and we let people down, other people in our lives will let us down as well. So other people cannot be a sustainable source of hope. A lot of times we'll turn to a third source of hope, and that's money. Or that's like a sense of financial security. And this is the attitude of, listen, if I can just make that purchase, if I can just buy that house, if I can just buy that car, or that truck, or that boat, then I'll be happy. And we know this, right? Gainesville, Oakwood, online, we know that the new and the shine always wears off of things. And if we're chasing the next big thing, if we're chasing the next big thing, man, that just leaves us exhausted. And if you've lived uh, life enough then you know that this attitude of trying to keep up with the Joneses is going to leave you exhausted, poor, and less satisfied. So money can't be a sustainable source of hope. Or how about this? A lot of men, we chase after position. We chase after position with this thought, listen, if I just attain that title, if I just get to that level of influence, then my life will have purpose. Then I'll have peace. Can I tell you this? That, greater, that higher position and greater responsibility always require more of us, never less. 
So if you and I are struggling to find satisfaction and contentment where we are right now, we'll certainly never find it whenever we reach whatever we consider the top to be. Position is not a sustainable source of hope. But thank God he gives us a fifth option, and that's Jesus. That's Jesus. I love what Acts 4.12 says. He says, There is no other name under heaven that God has given by which men, uh, man must be saved. In other words, not my own name, not other people's name, not the name of my bank, my bank, not the name of the job title on my desk. No other name but Jesus in which I can find hope, in which I can find peace, in which I can find significance, in which I can find purpose. And I can find peace. It's all about Jesus. So the question is, how in the world can Jesus become our source of hope? Glad you asked. Ruth chapter 3, if you have a Bible with you, I want to show you, and we're going to be picking it up in verse 3 this morning. Naomi is talking to her daughter-in-law Ruth after she came back home. She said, now do as I tell you, take a bath and put on perfume. Parents of middle schoolers, you may want to memorize that verse. <laughs> take a bath, some high schoolers too, take a bath and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor. The threshing floor was basically the shed that the, that the, that the barley harvest was, was gathered and it was laid in. And they would have a big celebration after the barley harvest. And they would basically just spend, spend the night with all the workers, everybody together uh, with the harvest there. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he's finished eating and drinking. Until he's finished his dinner. Be sure to notice where he lies down, then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. Now, other than this just being a weird way to pick up a man, <laughs> there's great application and there's great truth for us when it comes to understanding how in the world Jesus can become our source of hope. It starts with this, is we have to admit our condition. We have to admit our current condition. Here's what I mean by that. Is Naomi, widowed, grieving, grieving widow, lost two of her sons. She's back home in her hometown. She's probably embarrassed because she moved away. She came back empty-handed. And she has her daughter-in-law, Ruth, with her. And they don't really know what to do next. They were very, very honest about their current condition. Outside of the intervention of their family redeemer, Boaz, they had no hope for their condition to improve for the better. They were also united in their desperation. Do you know how desperate you have to be to where your plan, your grand plan to survive just another day is to go pick up the scraps and the crumbs behind the harvesters in the nearest field behind you and to bring them home and to try to like, find some sense of sustenance? off of it. Did you know many times God will use our desperation to lead us to his salvation? Did you know many times God will use our desperation to lead us to salvation? That desperation may be mental. It may be physical. It may be financial. It may be vocational. Any, God can use, it may be physical, it can be anything. God can use our sense of desperation to drive us to salvation. But we have to be honest about our current condition. Follow with me, church. Our current condition is not the fact that you and I are bad and Jesus wants to make us good. 
Because if that were true, then what we would try to do in our own strength, in our own way, in our own power, in our own timing, is we would try just to be better people, hoping that that's going to lead us to hope. But it won't because our good will never cancel out and forgive our bad, our previous bad. So our current condition is not we are bad people that God just wants to make good. Our current condition is not just that we are broken people that Jesus wants to put back together. Now, you may feel a sense of brokenness this morning, but that's not the root cause. That's a symptom of our current condition. We are not simply broken people that Jesus desires just to put back together because if I was simply broken, I would just go to the bookstore and I'd go to a self-help section and I would devour a bunch of self-improvement books and texts and then I would try to have self-improvement. I would try to self-improve myself, but that's never going to cancel out my past. Did you know that the Bible teaches us we're not just bad and Jesus wants to make us good or we're not just broken, Jesus wants to make us better? The Bible actually teaches we are dead. Our soul, our spirit is dead and Jesus wants to make us alive. And if we're honest about our current condition of not just being bad, not just being broken, but being dead, then we have no other option but to turn to the supernatural resurrecting power of Jesus to give us hope. But we have to first admit our current condition. But that's where it starts. It goes on. We also have to acknowledge who Jesus is. We have to acknowledge who Jesus is. Look at verse 9 after this weird way to pick up a man, pick up a husband. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. Let me go back to this statement right here. For you are my family redeemer. This is really important for us. Naomi, remember Naomi told Ruth who Boaz was. She correctly identified Boaz as their family redeemer. But just because she correctly identified Boaz to Ruth, that doesn't mean that it changed anything about Ruth. Here's what I mean by that. Ruth could not simply ride on the fact that Naomi was right about Boaz being the family redeemer. Ruth couldn't simply ride on the fact that she had all the right facts about Boaz. Correct. Ruth had to acknowledge Boaz as her family redeemer herself in order for the family redeemer to model and title to be applied over Ruth. Notice what she said. She said, listen, you're my family redeemer. Spread the, co- the corner of your covering over me. Basically, listen, I acknowledge that you are my family redeemer. You are my family redeemer. Did you know the same thing's true for you and I when it comes to Jesus? You cannot ride on your parents' relationship with Jesus You can't ride on your grandparents' relationship with Jesus. You can't ride on your your friend's relationship with Jesus. You can actually have all the right facts about Jesus correct and still not be in relationship with Jesus. Listen, if I could enter into a relationship with Jesus for you, I would. My guess is, is just about every single person in this room, every single person in the room in Oakwood and watching with us online, man, if we could make that decision for you, we would. I mean, one of the great things that we were able to celebrate this morning is two of Ken's sons following Jesus in baptism. 
Listen, if he could have made that relationship or made that decision for his boys much earlier, man, he would have, but he couldn't. This is a decision, this is a decision, and this is a choice that you and I have to make for ourselves. It's not enough to have the right facts about Jesus. We have to actually submit our lives to Jesus in order to enter into a relationship with Jesus. So we have to admit our current condition, we have to acknowledge who Jesus is, but then we also have to accept his redemption of us. If you flash over to Ruth chapter 4, Boaz goes to the city council, the city elders of the day, and he goes, hey, listen, if nobody else is going to redeem the family land, and by the way, with the family land comes Milan's widow, Ruth, I'm going to do it because I'm the family redeemer. This is what it says. Then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, you are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Milan. And with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Milan, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in, this, in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. I'm going to lay it out as simply as I know how. Ruth was the one in need. Boaz was the one that paid the price. Ruth brought absolutely nothing to the table. Boaz was the one that paid the price. Ruth did nothing to earn Boaz's kindness or redemption or love. Boaz was the one that paid the price. In the same way, let me make it as simple as possible. You and I, we are the ones in need. Jesus is the one that paid the price. There is nothing that I can do, that you can do, that we can do to ever earn the love and the favor of Jesus. He paid the price. You see, Jesus' love for you is not based on anything that you do or that you don't do. It's based on who he is. His love, he paid the price for us on a cross. He paid the price for my sins and for your sins on the cross. So he offers this great exchange. My sins for his holiness. My wrong for his righteousness. Me being separated from God from me being a joint heir to me being adopted into the family of God. We are the ones in need. He is the one that paid the price. Can I show you something really interesting at the beginning of Ruth chapter 3? And these two words appear over and over and over in the Bible. These are two really powerful words. One day. Ruth chapter 3, it starts off, one day, Naomi said to Ruth. If you go back a little bit in your Bible to Exodus chapter 3, right before Moses had an encounter with God at the burning bush, you know how Exodus chapter 3 starts off? One day. Right before John the Baptist was born, his dad, Zechariah, he was the high priest of the nation of Israel at the time, right before he went into the Holy of Holies to make sacrifice and make atonement for the people's sins. It says, one day, one day an angel appeared to the high priest, Zachariah, and told him, You're going to have, Elizabeth's going to have a son. His name's going to be John. He's going to be the forerunner of Jesus. Over and over and over and over in the Bible, it says, One day. One day. You may say, Okay, what's the big deal about one day? A lot can change in one day, can't it? Here's what I want to do. 
I'm going to guide us through the rest of our journey together this morning. And closing things out here in Gainesville, I want to toss it down to Pastor Jim on the Oakwood campus. He's going to guide y'all about the significance of what if today is your one day. Here's the question I want to pose to you, Riverbend. What if today was the one day that you decided that Jesus needs to be your source of hope? What if today was your one day? I cannot think of a better illustration than what we were all able to celebrate at the beginning of our service with Kimberly, with Taylor, with Andrew, with Josh, just being able to celebrate new life. Listen, their one day, it came. Their journey started. What if today is the day to where you look at the stories that were played out and you go, you know what? I need to give my life to Jesus. I need to follow Jesus in baptism. I need to stop trying to do things on my own because I need to come to a point where I acknowledge I can't do it on my own. What if today was your one day? What if today you realized that you are not here by accident? You're not here by chance. You're not here by coincidence. What if the, today was the day that God brought you here into this place, into this space, into this moment? Today is your one day. Here's what I mean by that. If today is your one day, let me walk you through that. It starts with admitting that you need hope. Can I ask you this, church? How are you on hope? Not to sound pop psychology, but like, how full is your hope tank? Did you come in here defeated? This past week, has it been defeated? Has it been defeating? Has it been draining? Or do you have hope? How are you with hope? Can I tell you this? Jesus is really our only sustainable source of hope. But we have to be honest with ourselves about ourselves. We have to be honest about our current condition. God will use our desperation to draw us to his salvation. But it starts with being honest and admitting our current condition. But we also have to acknowledge who Jesus really is. Like I said, you can have all the right facts about Jesus. But until you make the decision to willingly and intentionally turn from your way of doing things to embracing his way of doing things, the Bible uses the word repent for that. The turning away from my way to embracing his way. Until I make the decision, until you make the decision to turn away from your way of doing things to embrace his way of doing things. Listen, having the right facts about Jesus is not going to make a difference in your life. But then it also is about accepting his redemption. That means that, yes, Jesus has paid the price for you. Jesus offers you this gift of salvation, this gift of hope. But he loves you too much to force you to take it. He's not about forcing you into being a robot. He is about inviting you into a relationship. And a relationship and love can never be forced. He loves you too much to force it. He is extending this gift. He's extending this invitation to you. You have to accept it, though. What if today is your one day? Here's what I want to do in ending our time. I want to pray over us. If today you say, listen, 
Ben, today is my one day. I've tried to put my source of hope in all these other measures, in all these other categories. And I just realized that they'll always let me down. They always run dry. I want to know how Jesus can be my hope this morning. Or maybe you watch these four follow Jesus in baptism. You go, you know what? The entire time that I'm celebrating with them, I knew that that's exactly what God was calling me to do. I would love to talk with you. I would love to pray with you. Or maybe Jesus is your source of hope, but there's someone in your life right now that God has laid so heavy on your heart and in your mind that you just need to get out of your seat and you need to pray for them. You need to pray that God would give you an opportunity this week to extend Christ-like kindness to them, to open a gateway to point them to the greater hope that is Jesus. There's something powerful about lifting up someone's name specifically to God and saying, here God I am, Use me however you want to use me. Work in this person's life. Soften them, draw them to you. It's an incredible thing to be used by God to draw other people to him. So would you pray with me? And after we pray, you respond to how God's calling you to respond this morning. God, we thank you for your presence. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for your word that it clearly unpacks to us that your love is not something that we earned Your love is not something that we deserve. God, your love is a result of who you are. God, we thank you for loving us so much that you sent Jesus into this world to not just model life for us, but to die for us on a cross so that we can be forgiven of our sins, so that we can have a relationship with you, so that you can be our only source, our only sustainable source of hope. God, I pray that you will continue working in the hearts and in the minds and the lives of the people here with us this morning. God, understanding that there's some, that this is their one day. God, I pray that you would give them courage. I pray that you would give them boldness to step out and to make whatever decision that that they know that you are calling them to make this morning. God, we pray that your spirit would be thick among us and that we'd move freely uh, through us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Riverbend Church Podcast. To learn more about who we are as a church and how to connect, you can head over to our website, riverbendchurch.life.